When I named this podcast Twitter Travels for Pete over a year ago, I had no idea how prescient that name would be. How could I know that Pete Buttigieg would be nominated to be Secretary of Transportation by President-elect Joe Biden? Secretary Mayor Pete Buttigieg. This exciting news has prompted all of Team Pete to learn as much as we can about transportation. And thus, welcome to Twitter Travels for Pete, Transportation Edition. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about transit, something that affects everyone. And uh, to put together this episode, I'm actually going to uh, to talk to two people because uh, the first person I found was Jenny on Twitter. She had written this wonderful thread about public transit and how uh, the lack of public transit offerings was really difficult, made her miss a lot of opportunities in life. And she went on to write this thread under the hashtag LearnAboutDOT about the Federal Transit Agency. Um, And then also we have Ryan Hill with us today, who comes from the public policy side of things, from studying, has a master's in public policy with a focus on income inequality and rural urban development. So he's he can look at it from that perspective. So I wanted to put together the uh, the user, the, the, the needs of transit with a policy that can uh, start to address those needs. And so hopefully we'll get a great discussion going between the three of us. So first, um, let's just do a quick introduction of Jenny. Welcome. If you could uh, tell us a little bit about your background and also how uh, you have been involved with the, with the Pete campaign in the past. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me, Sue Ann. I really appreciate being here with both of you. Um, I'm uh, an Arizonan and been an Arizonan for quite a while, over three decades. I kind of got involved with, with the whole Team Pete um, back when he was doing his exploratory campaign. I saw him on television back in, I think it was January of 2019. And uh, like a lot of people, um, didn't know anything about him at the time, had never heard of him. Had him on some television show one afternoon in the background, not paying attention to it. And I heard this voice of reason coming from the television and I kind of turned to look and who is that? Who's this guy? And haven't looked back since. So that's how long I've been with, <laughs> just, uh, he just sounded reasonable. he made sense and I kind of wanted to know more about him and, um, it just kind of started from there. And he's still making sense. That's what's so great. We still get, we get to still hear him making sense now that he's talking about transportation. Well, thank you. And Ryan, uh, we actually met in South Bend over a year ago mm-hmm. uh, when I was there on one of my um, junkets. And um, so you have got the South Bend perspective also. Yeah. Um, maybe you could give us some of your background. And how, how do you, did you know Pete before he ran for president? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm from the area. I grew up in a Lakeville, a rural community about 10 minutes south of South Bend. Um and I spent a lot of my life in, in this city, but also growing up in the rural side. Uh, and then it, after finishing my undergraduate degree, I actually moved abroad to Japan. So 
lived in Tokyo for 10 years and got quite hooked on uh, using trains and not having to rely on cars to get everywhere. Um, while I was over there, though, I remember at the time seeing Pete's mayoral race uh, and actually emailing back and forth a few times about issues because I was always I've always been uh, kind of involved in that kind of thing um, and really appreciated kind of the perspective he was bringing to our city. Uh, so, yeah, uh, when I moved back to the U.S., there was always a bit of an eye if Pete was going to run. I wanted to try to help out with that. So I finished up my master's degree in public policy and then moved back to South Bend to kind of volunteer and help out as much as I could. Wow. I didn't know that you were gone for 10 years. Wow. That must have been quite the culture shock coming back. Uh, It has been. um, But it's one of the interesting things that I find like spending so much time over there. uh, You do very much end up uh, getting a middle perspective. So for me, when I'm I'm having kind of discussions here, I often end up pulling on things that I learned uh, dealing like with a mega city like that and kind of a very different cultural outlook at how policy and government should work. Um, I was there during the uh, the Great Earthquake, and it was uh, just a, a huge difference in how people kind of treated that situation there versus how they would have here. Um, And it really spoke a lot to kind of how they view the government in a way that it's supposed to be providing a lot of the the services that are necessary. Whereas uh, here, we often have to go deeply out of our way to justify things monetarily when the government tries to do something instead of just the fact that it's necessary for society. So really different perspectives. And it's, it's really interesting kind of participating in these things. Yeah, I'm sure you're going to be uh, telling us a, a little bit more as we uh, have our discussion here about um, what you learned living living there. Okay, so let's start with uh, the needs of public transit. And Jenny, if you could start by telling about your own experience of how you were n- negatively impacted by the fact that you did not have a way to get around. Yeah, so back in the early 80s, um, I went from living as an only child with my folks in a town in Montana of about, I think it was about maybe 30,000 people there at the time. We moved to Tucson, Arizona, which at that time was maybe about half a million, just under half a million people. And we come from a place in Montana that was very pedestrian friendly, very biker friendly. It could be different now. I'm sure it's grown, but it was everything was was set up in just a way to, to where except for in the really bad winters, you wouldn't really need a car to get around. My folks always walked to work, walked everywhere. So we, we very rarely used the car except, you know, do outings outside of town. And we went to a larger city where you, you think of cities, you think, okay, every, you can get around, transportation shouldn't be an issue. And we were a one-car family. My parents, you know, we struggled and uh, they both had to work. So one person would have the car and the other parent generally would maybe not have the car, have to rely on the bus system that we had in Tucson, which um, was, you know, it's not not awful. It's not like you have in places like San Francisco or Chicago where you have trains and much better transit. But uh, we have really bad heat in monsoons there in Tucson. Uh, so sometimes the, the, you know, the waiting at the bus stops, the heat would be terrible for people. Um, the, the way the buses ran, they weren't really reliable schedules. 
then the streets would flood in the rain and so the buses would be delayed and just it made it very difficult to get to places on time but since i was a kid you know you have school buses and and you don't worry about that too much at least just the adults who have to deal with it so then fast forward to when i was you know in high school and had you know jobs and then my early 20s when you're on your own and um because of low income and not a lot of money coming in you you do what you can for jobs and for a lot of us that meant things like retail or restaurant work and airlines eventually where you have a lot of shift work so you don't always have the same shift every week reliable schedule every week so our bus system there as good as it was compared to having nothing um the the schedules were in such a way that only the main roads the busiest roads had schedules from you know 5 a.m to 10 p.m at night the rest of them would be maybe 6 or 7 a.m till maybe 6 or 7 at night kind of iffy depending on what road it was and i understand that you know they based scheduling on ridership and that kind of stuff but when you're doing shift work and you have to get places really early in the morning or overnight or late at night and that's all you can afford you don't have a car you don't have you know other people that you live with who can give you rides or friends who can reliably get you places it gets tough it gets really tough and so like when i worked at the airline our shifts would change every six months so i would work sometimes 7 to 11 30 at night have no way of getting home sometimes because if a friend who gives you a ride can't you know can't do it that night etc so sometimes you're either having to walk miles literally <laughs> late at night which is not safe or so that you actually did that yeah there would be times when my ride couldn't get me somewhere and so i would be leaving the airline call center you know 11 11 30 at night and i'd have to go clear across town so it would take a couple hours to get home by foot because you can't oh, always no. you, know, you can't always afford to take a cab <laughs> that gets really right, expensive. And that was before Uber, and that would be expensive yeah, too. Yeah, so, so. You know, if you had to change change buses, if, if it took you two or three buses to get home while the buses were running, you could kind of do it. But um, sometimes you couldn't do it, and also there were times when buses just wouldn't run at a certain time anyway. So that was always tough. That's just just the scheduling itself, and I understand you know, budgeting and I understand all that stuff, but it's it, for working people, for regular people who need to get somewhere. Uh, it's, it's very tough when you can't afford a car and the scheduling makes it to where you just can't do it. Whether you're trying to get home, whether you're going to, you know, the grocery store, job interviews because you want to get a better job so you can afford to get a car. Um, you need to go to the doctor, um, I was always single. I didn't have any kids, so I didn't have to worry about, you know, childcare. But I know there are people who did have to worry about childcare, and doing that with the bus system is pretty tough. Um, other people who had mobility issues, really tough. Um, so that that was a it's real a real situation. barrier. It's a it's a real barrier. And yeah, and I worked, you know, a lot of different jobs, a lot of different shifts, where you're trying to find a job. And there were actually applications that I saw where they asked you if you had reliable transportation to get to a job at any time or certain times other than the bus, because even then they knew that the the ride was not always reliable. Delays happened, weather happened, um, so you couldn't always get to a place on time. So they would want to make sure you could get there 
besides relying on the bus. And that kind of made it to where you feel like you're almost being, being punished for not being able to afford a car. Well, at the same time, you need to get a job that will help you pay for not just buying a car, but the maintenance of a car. And, and so like, like Pete has been saying, it's, you know, very autocentric and we need to get away from that. But that was the reality. And that's an equity issue. Um, Pete's already been talking about that a lot um, and, and for transportation and that in the Biden administration, that equity is one of the three, three pillars. And then, and, and Ryan, that was actually income equality was what you focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, so how can, yeah, so it's, it's, it sounds like it's all about money. Is that true? Well, first I was going to say one of the other thing, it's, that's one of the problems is it's not all about money. Um, the way you see transit has been designed in this country for decades, um, partially it's about money. Like that's always what's being talked about. Can we uh, get enough ridership? Will this have enough economic benefit? Which those are certainly concerns. Uh, but when you go back into like the 60s and 70s when they were doing the larger highway projects and kind of redesigning cities for autocentric transit, uh, there are specifically also a lot of very racist kind of uh, destruction of neighborhoods, running highways through black and brown communities and separating them. Um, I was reading something today about the Detroit uh, bus system where you have different, uh, essentially they were saying that there was a different authority that dealt with the Metro Detroit uh, busing and the kind of... Um, suburban areas and they had issues where the suburban buses were much nicer and designed to be faster uh, and specifically won't pick up Detroit residents like they'll go through the city uh, and are avoiding kind of stops where they would uh, have to pick up people that are local in in the past I don't know if it's still that way um so that's yes I mean in Minneapolis uh, well of course there are commuter bus lines mm-hmm. that you know they just go they're they're for the basically for white collar workers. Yep. Um, and I mean, I like having that ac- access to that, you know, if that's what I need to do. Um, but um, yeah, at the expense of other workers, I suppose. Yeah. It's a reminder that like the monetary side's often kind of the justification that's used. But when Pete talks about it as equity and his general focus on those kind of things, like, Uh, A lot of that is dismantling kind of the harm that's been done as well over the decades uh, from people who are designing things, were designing things that way in the past. Mm -hmm. Because it it, it sounds nefarious, doesn't it? But uh, it sort of keeps people from being able to make progress. Like you said, Jenny, that, well, if you can't go to the job interview or, you know, for the job that's, that's a better job or you can't get the job that requires transportation, um, and so like, how do you ever, you know, advance and, um, yeah, and I always had to make sure when I would, I'm sorry to interrupt uh, every time I would, you know, you would change, you would move to another apartment, you know, for, cause the rents were also being hiked <laughs> while you're trying to better yourself, getting a job that you can't because you're not on the bus line. So you're, you're constantly moving around. Like I always had to just make sure I only lived on a bus line and try to get as close to a major bus line as possible, knowing the way the schedules worked. And that limits you also. You're still limiting your reach for jobs, for for housing, for everything else. And we had a park and ride system in Tucson. I live in Sierra Vista now, which is more rural, and we have our own issues here. 
Um, but the park and ride system, even then, um, makes it difficult. And you still have the busing schedule issues there as well. And one of the other things you, you mentioned, kind of the issue of having to walk, like on top of all of this, like the way cities tend to be designed is they're very restrictive of walking once you get out of downtown. Like if you're walking along a major highway, uh, obviously that's very unsafe. Like it's one of the things that struck me coming back to this country is just how like deliberately a lot of municipalities uh, build their, their transit system because they don't want people walking around unless they're specifically in certain areas, et cetera. So um, it's another it's side. It's very unsafe. Yeah, and that's the people unsafe. who are able to walk. I mean, I was fortunate in that I was able to. I was in my 20s when I worked for the airline and uh, thinking, you know, this is this is a major corporation, a major airline. And I work for a subsidiary that, that brings them a lot of revenue and they can't even find a way to give get their employees, you know, some kind of a shuttle or something for the different hours that they, that we work. And what about the people who can't? who can't work, who are challenged with mobility issues, they, you know, that you can't expect them to be getting across town at that hour. So they're limited. So it sounds like, Ryan, from the policy perspective, that somebody uh, needs to uh, place it as a priority and, and the way that it's, a, it's the way of thinking of of transit, right? It's like, do you think of it as a way of just moving around or keeping people in their social class and moving around that way? Or do you think of it more in terms of this is our community and uh, everyone needs to have access to transportation, right? So do you think it's a mindset or um, like a philosophy? Well, I think it's a combination. I mean, you're seeing in kind of the, the last decade or so, uh, a decrease in car ownership as more people are starting to move back into city air and urban areas uh, and honestly are trying to kind of live with public transit. Um, I, like I said in, in one of my dis, uh, discussions on Twitter about it, like communities are connections and transit like this is a way of breaking down those barriers and uh we know kind of the economic benefits are huge, but it's also societal. Uh, one of the things that you see a lot when you read kind of uh, about urban design, like um, I think uh, it was Jane Jacobs who did the uh, death and life of great American cities, uh, is just the need to have people around and present for safety, for economic activity, to kind of deal with lesser crime, et cetera. Uh, and, that's a thing with public transit, too. When you have people moving around and people uh, congregating, it's a lot safer for people. Well, that's really interesting because if it's not working right, then it's like the opposite, right? If the hours aren't right, then you have people walking around late at night and or waiting at a bus stop for, for an hour, and that's not safe. Parking lots, right? Car to car parking lots are, are known to be places where you have to be a little careful because... Um, they they are both busy and isolated at the same time. So it's kind of another interesting uh, side effect of this. Like the more you tie people together in, in groups, the, the safer it is in a lot of, uh, of city places. So the, there's just no end to the benefits of having a better public transit system. Uh, I find that very interesting. I've never thought about the safety issue from that. It's sort of an indirect um, 
effect that you were talking about. And uh, Pete's talked about safety of being uh, of utmost importance. But, you know, with this uh, fewer cars on the road, one of the benefits of that is, of course, uh, climate. Um, and that's also a, a good selling point then for mass transit is, hey, it's better than having all these cars driving around. What do you see as far as like uh, as uh, you know addressing climate change issues? Is that is that really that's helping um, sell transit options? No. Yeah, definitely. Like the more we switch to uh, have more people in public transit or electric vehicles as well to some extent, as long as the infrastructure they're drawing from is also powered by greener technology. Um, those are all huge changes. Like uh, one of the big things that you see in a lot of these areas that had the the large highway projects is much higher rates of cancer, uh, lead in the soil, water pollution, air pollution, uh, and that takes a toll on the people that live in those areas. And you know, like with society in general being so autocentric, um, even though it's more obvious the closer you get to those. Uh, communities by the highways, uh, you know it's affecting everyone regardless. So, yeah, um, health-wise, it's a huge, huge change to live in an area where you can use transit better. I want to ask you about um, the density of population because most of my, my my positive experiences with public transit are in other countries, and so you were in Tokyo, <laughs> very densely populated. And I've been to the Netherlands a lot and I've been to the UK and you can just, it's so easy. You just hop on a bus or a train. And it was like that in Australia too, in Sydney and in Melbourne. I used the public transit a lot. It was great. But all those places have a density of population uh, that, you know, makes it easier for them to plan for it and uh, have a lot of different options. Um, so I don't know what a good example is of a of a system that uh, where the population is less dense than that but um i think you know the other benefit is if you know you can just go someplace so easily well you're going to go more places maybe um you know you don't have to worry about parking your car what you're going to do with your car you just leave your house you walk and you know like it's it's actually it's actually fun <laughs> yeah you can explore um it's one of the things like when you, uh, uh, Japanese side, but I also had this in Denver when I was uh, doing my master's work is uh, if you have a public transit system in the city, getting kind of a pass from your employer or school or wherever. Um, and it just encourages kind of like hubs of exploration, right? You can just go out and um, I haven't been down this line yet. My pass will get me there. So why don't I go see what's there? Um, and it, Again, it connects those communities a lot better, uh, which otherwise you're not going to see that. There's so in, in South Bend, there's a, a old older rail system called the uh, South Shore that goes from South Bend up into Chicago, uh, and it used to be kind of one of those luxury like '50s uh, local rail lines. Um, but over the years, with the changes in the city, it's it's kind of uh, it it's no longer comes into downtown. Uh, it kind of stops up on the northwestern side, where there's a bit of an industrial area uh, up by the airport. I mean, one of the things that they find though, when you look at 
uh, installation of those kind of transit systems is there's a huge economic growth. And I, I forget the exact number, but it's uh, maybe up to like 10 times or more uh, in the, the area surrounding a new station. And I always thought about that back when I was in Denver because they were installing new lines like, oh, that's cool. I can get to those communities and check them out like, you know, you know, you know a couple of months when that's done. So when we talk about revitalizing neighborhoods and cities, that's a, a huge part of it is make it easily accessible so people can walk around and shop, go to events, that kind of thing. Once we're able to do that again, obviously. Uh, right. So I'm just the, the caveat is we're hoping that transit is going to bounce back, that, that we are, will actually will be dying to go to places again and uh, hopefully go back to, to work. <laughs> so what can the FTA, or the, what's the role of the Federal Transit Agency, is it? Administration. Um, Jenny, administration. administration. Yeah. Hey, you guys, I guess <laughs> I should figure these things out beforehand, <laughs> but at least everyone knows this is an authentic conversation. <laughs> uh, um, so Jenny, uh, could you give us a simplified version of what what yeah, does that? Yeah, real simple. Yeah, real simple. simple. Huh? <laughs> yeah, quick, quick rundown. Yeah, based just some some basics. You know what, what I found out through my research when I was trying to find out. You know, okay, who, based on the issues that I have, who, what, what, what agency addresses those kinds of things that I was impacted so much by, and and just some things like you know they're they help with financial and tech assistance to local transit systems which is which is a, a big issue for for people like myself and tr you know we talked about safety transit safety measures is certainly another one and um ryan you you had some great points on safety uh which is a huge thing i i couldn't count the number of times that i sat at you know bus stops late at night thinking you know there's literally nobody around and I just have this little street light here and I'm, you know, 20 something year old woman at the time I'm 47 now, but it's, it's still, you know, you, you, for anybody, it's, it's, it's nerve wracking. Um, they help with tech research with grant funding and other, other projects for funding, uh, federal oversight of all, all types of those issues, of course, is, is necessary. They, they work with the transit investments for real estate, um, for like walkable land near near urban areas, urban centers. So so they can invest in some of those areas that are for like transit centers and places that people can walk to to get to transit. I didn't even know that. Um, and of course, you have the mobility and accessibility support. That's so important for for folks with mobility issues or the elderly, low income. Um, that's really, I think, really becoming more and more in the spotlight, especially lately. Wow, that's a lot, a lot happening. Uh, anything, Ryan, that you would like to add to this? Uh, yeah, I mean, they they just have a huge kind of broad area that they're responsible for. Um, and like, it's, it's one of those things that they are able to oversee a lot of grants and kind of those kind of in, inductions of cash into communities so that they can start a lot of these projects and, and keep them going. So, um, but yeah, like Jenny was saying, they, they hit basically all different uh, sections of mass transit and in, including the approach to it. Right. Uh, so it's, it's really broad. Wow. So, but, but so what are the challenges to, so why, why don't we have more? Why are there still so many needs? Uh, what are the challenges of, of 
of uh, providing adequate public transit. Uh, the challenges of the FTA and uh, local governments. Besides the massive backlog that they have currently, apparently. <laughs> ah, so that's it. Yes, and I read that. It, uh, somebody at some point said, we know maybe we don't even need the FTA. Right, let's, exactly. You know, yeah, they you were... know, let's just use that money for other things. Right. Well, it's, it's one of the interesting things when you start getting into the funding side of uh, mass transit. Um, everybody supports it, and we we saw that in kind of the hearings for Pete's confirmation. Um, like everyone has a different issue that they need that can that is often focused around moving people and things back and forth, right? Uh, there is a, some interesting studies that were done. Um, I think it was 2013. They uh, they were reviewing a lot of different kind of. Uh, tax measures that were designed to put money into new transportation projects. Uh, and the interesting thing is out of 450 kind of local government measures, 80% of them passed. And it's one of those, like, any issue where you can get 80% of the measures passed where people are voting to raise their own taxes for a project. I mean, we know 80% of, uh, it, it's just such a huge number for support, Right. So its support is there, just like Pete says, you know, this yeah. is uh, one of these things that basically, you know, most people will agree on. To an extent. <laughs> to, <laughs> no. To, I, I have a different experience with that. Um, on broader, I, I agree. But um, having been in Tucson and now Sierra Vista, of course, uh, yeah, you, had, do, you do have people saying, yes, we need this. But no, we don't want to pay for it. <laughs> we had a lot of those issues over the years which were not helped by the fact that um, you would have union disagreements with, with the, the bus drivers would go on strike frequently because, you know, they wanted better conditions. It's not always a safe job. You deal with assaults, you deal with all kinds of, of things you should not have to deal with on the job and, and wages stagnant and everything. So there were so many times when there were, there were bus strikes leaving the rider stranded. And on one hand, you understand, yes, I get why these guys are striking. I understand it. I support them, but I can't get to work. I can't get to school. I'm totally stuck. I am totally walking. And people would get upset. And of course, their anger would be misdirected. They would think, oh, right. you know, I'm not paying for this because these darn, these darn bus drivers just, you know, can't accept they have it better than I do. So, you know, why should they be asking for more? So you had a lot of that mentality people getting angry at at the bus drivers instead of where it really belonged so then it's kind of like well then you're raising the fares and i'm not gonna you know this is ridiculous the service hasn't you know blah 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 so there's a lot of misdirected anger there people not wanting to pay for things for that reason um and then i live in a smaller rural community now where they are actually cutting what few bus routes there are there's maybe i think three during the week and two on the weekends last that i read and they don't go to all parts of town so i'm not even near a bus line at the moment um luckily we have one car in the family but i still have to rent a car to go to tucson to see a, you know see a doctor because our our vehicle is old and we're trying to keep the miles off of it. But we, we had a lot of issues in Tucson where people just didn't want to pay for things because they thought, oh, you have it good enough, so we should just keep it the way it was. 
So and why don't you just buy a car? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so I, I, under, I do understand Ryan's point that it, you know, it's not all about the money, but to a lot of people, it was. It really was. There's actually an issue there because you're you're talking mostly about buses, right? Mm-hmm. And sit like street buses. Right, because we didn't have trains there. Right. But one of the issues that you have is going back to the equity side of things is society, particularly in the U.S., tends to have a very negative view of street buses. Uh, Like we were saying earlier, you can get your bus rapid transits or your like kind of dedicated ones. And those tend to be get a lot of support. But just because of kind of the way we've we have. develop this negative view of people who are, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but uh, poverty shaming in this country, right? Yeah, you're um, down upon, exactly. you have to take the bus. If you start talking about buses, people, the the first reaction you get tends to be negative. It's, uh, there is a, an interesting, um, actually, study by the FTA on kind of the challenges for non-train transit. And uh, which essentially in this case was uh, their their bus rapid transit projects. And like the first one was always like people develop negative stereotypes about buses and bus users. So that's interesting. So if uh, in a community they say, let's do some light rail, then it's like, okay, that's a game changer because uh, they're not negative associations. Yeah. But, and up in <laughs> Phoenix, you know, up in Phoenix, they have light rail and it's, it's great. I, the few times I've visited up there, it's it's a little far for some of us to get to, <laughs> but it, it's great. Some of the systems that they have compared to what wasn't in Tucson and what is especially not down here in a smaller rural county in Arizona. Well, Denver has light rail, too, and it's very much focused um, on the suburbs coming into Denver, going back to kind of how the transit systems are designed. Um, And they had a big uh, measure uh, maybe a year or two ago, pushing about expanding it and down in the the city itself. So it's going from between neighborhoods more instead of just, again, (laughs) going from the people who uh, probably really needed a lot more. Um, And that was a lot, more of a fight because they're arguing about uh, whether it's worth it doing it that way and um, connecting kind of neighborhoods when they're like, well, we already have buses and other things, but they don't serve exactly the same purpose. So like rail gets exciting for people and BRT, when people start to see how it works, they realize it's the same thing. But when you start seeing street buses, that's, the exception where people start getting that negative stereotype right. unfortunately. And when, that, and when that's all you have in town you know you're, mm-hmm. what do you do <laughs> so in in my my example of light rail here in the twin cities we have one light rail and it, it really basically goes down a bus route so i mean you used to be able to just take a, a bus mm-hmm. on the same route but the fact that it's light rail is cool it's like, it's okay then, right? And a lot of people are taking it. So, I mean, it's like the game changer. Um, yeah. And also, maybe it's safer. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's really, because there's really nobody buddy on it. But um, I don't know. But I, I actually wanted to ask you, Ryan, about the how the local, the, um, the city works with FTA. And you might not know this, but I mean, that 
uh, would be a complication. You know, is there, there's a problem with the uh, city buying into the importance of it um, and the relationship that they have with the FTA and how they work together? Well, I mean, that depends very much on the city and kind of their um, government. And I think it's something else comp- uh that complicates it is that these are a lot of these are long-term plans, right? Or long range. So, and you've got to have, um, you know, really uh, stick to this, the, this goal that's going out five years. Well, there's that, that old adage that the world would be better if we all planted trees that we would never see the shade to sit in, you know? Um, when you get to transit projects for politicians and, people like in city administration, they're often having to be the people who would think that way because they can take five, 10 years. Um, even like getting a, a new uh, airline route into a city takes often 10 years or more with the FCC. So, uh, wait, FCC? No, that's wrong. <laughs> FAA? <laughs> hey, uh, FAA. FAA, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, too many acronyms. So, yeah, yeah that, that like, it, it was interesting watching a lot of the projects that happen in South Bend under Pete, because he's famous for the smart streets redesign, uh, roundabouts for all who want them, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of that, though, is understanding the grants that are available and being able to bring those in. Now, one of the problems that you do have with a lot of cities that we don't really talk about as much is a lot of the infrastructure that was built during the, the manufacturing heyday in, in 60s and 70s when focused on auto-centric, um, that infrastructure is still there. They got their grants from the government back when they built them, but then you have the issue of upkeep, right? Um, and it's a huge drain on cities, particularly in the Rust Belt, who have lost population. So... That's one of the, the problems you often, you do get with the, the city federal kind of divide is you can often get the money to get started and get the project going, um, but you have to have a plan for how to keep the maintenance and everything, um, which can be a lot more challenging. Wow, it's almost like you need a, uh, somebody in charge of continuity. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word. do you think Pete is uniquely qualified to lead the U.S. Department of Transportation? More than qualified, but how he's, you know, going to really excel in leadership. Jenny, you wrote about this in your thread. You kind of ended with, uh, with uh, why you thought Pete was going to do a great job. Well, besides what Ryan was saying earlier, he was talking about, you know, how Pete kind of initiated that smart tech in South Bend and really kind of expanded on it. Uh, he's got that proven ability, at least to me, to he he kind of attracts innovative individuals that he can partner with. So you know, those forward thinking and, and he really kind of puts a emphasis on that forward thinking. And you mentioned earlier, uh, I think Ryan, about, you know, it's one thing to to bring in um, thoughts and grants and funds for for infrastructure, but you also have to maintain it and keep it going in the long term. And I think that Pete has always kind of been that solution-minded and forward-thinking guy, uh, you have where he thinks about that kind of stuff, and he also sees how transportation and infrastructure impacts lives and communities. He understands that personal effect 
like he's always talking about, you know, politics is personal. And even though he wasn't the first person to say that, he has really amplified it. And that's what really struck with me and um, my personal experience with, with the transportation issues. He gets it. He understands that it is personal. And he understands that he understands infrastructure and sustainability issues um, from being mayor. He, he was focused on that. And, and Ryan? Well, also, I, I would add that him, uh, his experiences as mayor, like the, the times where he had um, ideas that he was working on and then things did kind of blow up a little at him. He's, he's shown uh, that he's very flexible. He takes the time to, you know, measure where we are on things and then go back to correct if needed or um, that kind of thing. And when we're talking about these kind of large projects that can, if used properly, they can uh, break down wealth inequality, they can break down racial inequality, uh, they can bring jobs and revitalize cities. Uh, but if done improperly, as we've seen, they can divide communities, pollute water, um, just ruin lives. And he's got the kind of outlook to understand that responsibility. So that kind of flexibility and respect as a public servant, I think, uh, on top of his background as kind of an analyst and someone who really does like to do all the research, he's going to do a good job with it. Like, just by trying to hit all of the cylinders, whereas in the past we've seen people come in who are very focused on one particular goal, right? Like more roads or uh, improving certain aspects of things and then not really thinking about the whole picture. Uh, from what we've seen of him, he is very good at just taking that whole picture, taking the time to properly digest it before doing something with it. Yeah, and I, I think he's he's really going to uh, show results that by the end of his uh, four years that uh, everyone will know what uh, he's accomplished. And he'll, he'll be the first to say he didn't do it on his own, of course. He's uh, such a, a great team player. Yeah, he talks to all kinds of different people. You know, I'm in a, I'm in a, in a county where it's going to be a little tougher maybe to, to speak to um, certain people people just because of, you know, political background or, or ideology. And he, he, he knows how to kind of reach across all that and, and make allies from all different walks of life. And that will really, I really am excited to see uh, what he can do maybe for Southern Arizona. Oh, yes. And, and he'll probably be on Fox News. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, like you said, he knows how to talk to people. Uh, and he yeah. also knows it's important to talk to them and right. give people that voice. Mm-hmm. And and they probably feel like uh, nobody's cared to hear. Yeah, rural, rural communities. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, now my last question is: as I'm, I'm asking everybody, what's your dream? What's on your dream list for public <laughs> transit? So, like, you know, if you could get whatever you want, and I know what Ryan's is, right? I'm going to ask you first, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of high speed rail. Um, just again like the idea of connecting cities uh we've if i could have my dream thing regarding transit and i'm this obviously to me is a bit of a privilege of you to have this but it's just me uh after riding japanese high-speed trains and things i would like to see the the competitiveness come back in the u.s for 
having the fastest and the best uh, trains going between cities. And, you know, so if I want to go from South Bend back to visit friends in Denver, uh, you know, if we had the kind of project that they're doing in other countries with maglev trains and those kind of things and, and the pride in trying to trying to do crazy things like that, um, you could get from Chicago to Denver in six hours. Well, how about South Bend to Chicago? How long would it take? Uh, it takes a. It would probably take about an hour from South Bend to Chicago at that point. <laughs> a, a, a high um, speed train. Yeah, but that's a difference. You know, that's like that's that's doable. Then that's uh, you know, as far as like, are you going to just do it for the day kind of thing? Exactly. I mean, if you have people could hop over to New York for the day, maybe there'd be a little less frustration at the coastal and interior kind of divide that we have. Mm, that's um, see now you're really looking at things from a, uh, a lot of different perspectives. I love that. Okay. I, also, you want a carless. You're trying to be carless with that uh, Ryan. Am I am I putting words in your mouth? Actually, I saw this. Uh, I think you you put that in a the, the yeah uh, message to me. I mean, it's not necessarily that I want to be carless. It's that I I like to have options. I I would love to be able to have an electric car. Um, not dealing with uh, the pollution and such from gasoline, but also still have the freedom to go where I need to. But uh, in a lot of communities, it's it's a really difficult to go carless. And I don't know, like we were saying earlier with the trains, there's so much more freedom when you can just hop over somewhere, walk around, do what you need to do, and then then hop home on the train. It's so much nicer. <laughs> and it's just making me think of the Netherlands where it's like you're either on a train, a bus, or you're riding your bicycle. Yep. <laughs> There's hardly any. And the bicycles is kind of dangerous if you don't know the rules of the road. And I, I uh, yeah, basically walked into bicycles several times um, and they they were not amused. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Jenny, your dream. Well, I'm, I'm really with Ryan on the high-speed rail. Um, would love to have something even just between Sierra Vista and Phoenix before we even think about out-of-state. Uh, I used to love to travel. Um, even before the pandemic, you feel kind of isolated when you're in a community where you have to have a car and drive several hours to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it would be great to have one for employment reasons, for, for education reasons, for you know to see people. It would be fantastic. But if we're going to dream really big, I wouldn't mind having, you know, like a Star Trek transporter station in several <laughs> parts of, of town, you know, to really get somewhere really fast. But I know that's probably dreaming a bit more in the future. But um, the high speed rail absolutely would be would be ideal. I was just going to make a joke that Pete would have to um, interface with Space Force. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we'll get there. We'll me. get there. <laughs> uh, well, I I do have hope now that uh, Pete is going to be leading uh, the USDOT uh, with that leadership, and he's so optimistic. Uh, when I say optimistic, when, I'm going to answer my own, the own my question of why I think Pete's qualified. But uh, I agree with everything that you've said, which is you you both mentioned the 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 meat of it, but. I, I just love how he th- sees potential instead of limitations and like, oh, well, we can't do that because, because, because he's more focused on the potential and the possibilities. And um, that's that's how we get things right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about uh, 
public transit. It's been a fascinating discussion for me. And I know the, um, my listeners are going to be very interested in it. So I'll, on Twitter, uh, Jenny, you are? I'm at Misfit, Misfit Muser. Yeah, and I don't know what you, uh, I don't know, uh, people will just have to find out what you mean about that. Misfit Muser. <laughs> and Ryan, you are Omni? What? Yes. I don't want to say the wrong thing. What is uh, it? Omni 42. Okay, well, you know, there are stories behind people's, people's Twitter handles. I'm just going to, we're not going to, we're not going to like spoil the surprise of that people just have to find out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you, Sue Ann. Thank you for having us. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Twitter Travels for Pete, Transportation Edition. I hope you learned something new. I know I did. 